Welcome to Frost Sessions, the Frost School of Music's official podcast. On this episode, our very own Alan Johnson, head of the Frost School of Music's opera program, chats with versatile performer, vocalist, and inaugural chamber music artist in residence, Alicia Hall Moran. Together, they explore the stories of opera legends, how to channel your inner musicologist, and what you can learn from the generation that taught your teachers. Thank you for joining us, and remember to stay tuned to Frost Sessions. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. It's a really windy road how I've come here today, but it's uh, uh, perfect, perfect for my life. It's, it's exactly following suit with everything else, just the unexpected all the time and at a high level. So thank you for having me join this panel. Alicia, tell us uh, where, you, where you are right now at this beautiful grand piano. Uh, where's your location? I am in Harlem, New York, where I live with my husband and my twin sons, Malcolm and Jonas. Uh, they're being uh, very well behaved, <laughs> quiet <laughs> in another part of the house. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up on the East Coast here. Sorry, that's my ear pod. And um, uh, I went to Manhattan School of Music, which is down the street and a little bit Further down the street from that is Barnard College, uh, Columbia University, and that's where I went before Manhattan School of Music. So I kind of, um, for me to be speaking to conservatory students who, who um, and uh, students at a, at a university where they have the opportunity to major in things other than music or to do combined majors is really, that's, probably, you know, the channel I would have dialed up in if I could have at the time. I did it like the eight-year plan, but uh, what you offer there at Frost School is really magnificent, so I'm happy to be here. Well, great. I, I think maybe that's a great place to start with you mentioning the Frost School, and uh, you, you, you are uh, listed at now for, as a chamber artist uh, at Frost at, the, at, the, at, the, at this time? Valerie Coleman invited me to narrate some Langston Hughes poems for mm -hmm. her composition uh, that was part of her inaugural concert, her own inaugural concert, when she took on the chairmanship of the brand new chamber music department at Frost School of Music. Yeah. And I went down, it was, it was a, pardon the expression, but it was a gig, and I went to narrate but I got to have some really meaningful exchanges with some students, very impromptu, about uh, stagecraft. And that led to some sort of light bulb in Valerie's head, which was to meld this idea that students from all artistic uh, um, uh, areas at the school might appreciate some sort of interface with someone who pretty much just talks and uses their body in this space. Like I said, I'd gone to be a narrator, so I hadn't sung at all. It was just the yeah. idea of me, my eyes, my hands, my face, my body, introducing myself to a brand new space. And it was a space where I actually was a little in intimidated because she had her chamber music students in the audience watching uh, our, our performance. Um, so I, I ingratiated myself to them and she thought, what if that were teachable? And that I think became how, you could ask her, but I think that's how I became mm -hmm. the inaugural chamber music artist in residence at the Frost School of Music at University of Miami. Yeah. Um, so everybody, uh, Alicia is a uh, composer, a mezzo-soprano, a producer, uh, a collaborator par excellence uh, in whom she uh, creates projects that just branch out from all of those different areas. And all of you are here at the Frost School and the career that Alicia Hall is going to share with us um, over this next hour and a half or so is 
just that very career that uh, Dean Berg talks about with all students that come to the Frost School. And he always uses the, 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 the term Frost built. And um, Shelley Berg describes it as Frost as being that innovative place to build yourself and curate your career. You can build yourself at Frost and that there are no walls between disciplines. So Alicia, with that being said, um, maybe I'm just gonna play a little bit of uh, um, uh, one of your recordings here, and then I'm gonna turn it over to you and, and, and have you tell us about your, how you built your career and how it, there are no walls and disciplines are crossed. What I'd like to play is your version here that combines and uh, very creatively uh, uh, mashes up uh, Stevie Wonder and George Bizet. Like a fool, I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong, baby. Here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm young. I'd like to play that entire track. It is so amazing, Alicia. Oh, thank you. Well, I, you have to stop and applaud. Bravo. Very good. And what a voice. <laughs> so yes, that, uh, 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 Professor Josephson, Kim, have, have you and Alicia crossed paths in your careers? Just today, and I'm just so happy to meet you. Beautiful, 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 wow. Oh, I miss having someone say this to me. I need to call my voice teacher <laughs> and get some feedback. It feels so good, thank you. Yeah. So there's, there's so many points of departure here, but how about if we begin, um, we're, gonna, uh, uh, we're gonna lead to the article that uh, was brought to our attention that you wrote, um, but uh, listening to your voice and it just conjures up your training and your immersion in, uh, in, in classical uh, training, classical singing, jazz, popular, and all of these names of singers that, that inhabit those worlds, whether it's Ella Fitzgerald, Nina Simone, or Dee uh, Dee Bridgewater, or uh, the great classical singers in opera. Tell us about your formative experiences, how one can do what you just did. Where, 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 how, how, what kind of training have you had to do that? Well, that's the best way to ask that question. And I don't think I've ever been asked what the link to training was. You mentioned Manhattan School and Barnard and... Yeah, so I've always had this feeling that I was, no matter where I was, just a little bit outside of what someone expected to see or hear when they open the door. Now, sometimes that's a pleasant surprise. And other times it's like, oh, well, you look the part, but the sound is somewhere else. So I'm that person who um, had, you know, this woman was very excited about my look and my sound. And she said, you should go to Broadway. Here's walk right in. I got you this fabulous audition. They're looking for a new Aida. I guess Heather Headley was making her plans to, to do other things. And I remember she also had a hit record at the time. So maybe that was a thing. I don't know. And so I walk in and I start singing my idea of Broadway's Aida. <laughs> it's like Elton John. They were like, no, 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 don't do any of that opera. Just give us how you look and sing Aida, like for Broadway. But you know, for me, that was the most confusing sentence ever because in my mind, and what I actually said to the auditioners was, well, had you considered doing it with more head voice in the role? <laughs> That's me, like, I don't know. I went, I showed up to my audition at Manhattan School of Music and I remember very clearly somebody um, saying, had I considered auditioning for jazz? 
And in fact, I hadn't because I know Sarah Vaughan. I know um, uh, um, um, that Cassandra Wilson, I know that the technicalities of jazz require also years of study, also which I had not had. So I think there's something about the way you present and what you have inside that I have been so, um, so prize-winningly confusing for so long that the day I had my Motown book and my mezzo-soprano art song, uh, Aria's book, I mean, I think the G. Shermer, the old version though, not the one with the CD and the translation, the kind where you had to like sit, and like, you know, the old, the gray, the gray, the gray cold looking one. And I um, had them at the, that to me, I'm hearing the, the bass lines of both simultaneously, not as a gimmick or as something funny or hilarious, but like deep inside, my inner musicologist was like, that's your home. It is really a combined home. You're going to have a, 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 like a, like a two family upbringing. And so really, I never really ever turned back. I noticed that my upper voice gained freedom in a new way when I tried to sing uh, in a sentimental mood, Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. uh, because I knew that to sing that kind of music to an audience, it had to look natural. It had to be unapologetically felt, meaning no language barrier anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't like anything I could hide behind. I would be a black girl singing a jazz song badly <laughs> and we couldn't allow it. So it forced me to find space for the first time, not outside in a desire, but inside in my body and to, um, oof, I feel very emotional talking about this, but really it's, it's just freeing up the spaces, like in the ribs, the, all, the, all the places where I had been striving to be this soprano. In the jazz, I felt, you know, it's, it's now or never. It's step up to the plate. There's no room. I'm not a young anything in jazz. It's like, and, but I sang the jazz with so much head voice. So even there, was I trapped or delivered? And I think that's what my sign seal delivered was for me. It was like, no, I'm just gonna do it the way I feel it in my body, measure by measure. And uh, I, I earned that. It's a mm -hmm. humiliating and joyful road. It's not mm -hmm. easy and no one can arrange that for you. These aren't mm -hmm. arranged for me. I mm -hmm. arranged the things from the Motown project on my own in myself and then I share them with the musicians who contribute their feelings to um, my temperature. Mm -hmm. And what, what was your uh, classical uh, training then? You mentioned having the old Shermer book. Um, you went to Manhattan School of Music and what was that experience like for you? You know, I really have to give so much praise to this kind of triumvirate of Betty Allen, the Harlem School of the Arts, but who was also teaching at Manhattan at the time, Adele Addison, who I talk about in my article, A Life at the Opera, and Hilda Harris. Hilda Harris, mezzo-soprano, who integrated racial integration, racially integrated pants roles, at the Metropolitan Opera, you know, like, isn't that a kind of an amazing thing? They mm -hmm. don't give you a medal for, but what a medal. She was uh, the first, the first uh, pants wearing black woman mm -hmm. to, you know, have a, 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 well, a chance at bat in one of those really sumptuous roles. And so um, I come from this group of highly individualized, greatly important, and greatly traveled musicians. So Virgil Thompson is working with the sound of the acoustic of the Betty Allen posture and her like 
passion. What would she say? Words, words, words. It was just words. She'd be yelling at you, words, give me the words. And you think, well, I spent my whole Saturday to get yelled words in, at me. But you know, to this day, I hang my whole career on those three words. I, I know that I could. I'm just wow. a pile of words. Adele yeah. Addison, again, the kind of voice that made Leonard Bernstein say, I can make this work on your voice, right? Adele Addison, um, also premiering songs uh, for the first time. Um, uh, Aaron Copeland, working with her voice, you know, in this combine. So that's who I was looking at when I was mm -hmm. in school. And I was I, a slow baby. I mean, I was slow. So uh, I thought at the time, oh my gosh, should I be doing this? Because here are all these little chickadees and, and beautiful sparrows tweeting in all the trees so easily up and down. They're having such a beautiful time. Like, of course, whatever other, other singer is doing seems so easy for them, right? Hmm. And I'm, it's so hard for me. But, you know, in the observation, of to be future great singers at places, um, Chautauqua, Aspen, these are the places that these teachers are bringing me, teaching me how to consider voices, teaching me how to write. I only took notes. I, when I wasn't the most popular singer, uh, guess who was at every single chamber music concert ever at Aspen, like every night. I wasn't really the one getting ice cream and having fun and enjoying my um, youthful stardom. I really, and then studying so hard and the, all that pressure on me. I didn't have that pressure. And I also mm. didn't have that ice cream. I mm. mostly was at the concerts, uh, the instrumental concerts. Eighth Blackbird changed my life on a day when maybe I would have wanted to be on a picnic, but I wasn't. I was sitting listening to Awadaj and Pratt in a master class where like 12 people were there. You know, that's yeah. where I spent all my time. So I, I feel, oh man, I'm, 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 mm, I'm boring and blessed. They went mm. together. Wow. Um, I thought maybe we could, uh go to this article and maybe you want to guide us a little bit through it uh, uh with us uh alicia that you wrote. yeah I'll, I'll i'll put it up here um and uh let me can i tell two little short stories about betty allen yeah. and adele yes hi jeanette yes just two little short stories not only were these women just um pretty amazing but they were also very generous. And Betty Allen, who first of all was the pride of Leonard Bernstein, he, she was the pride of his, um, but she also used to hold master classes every Saturday for mm -hmm. free. So all you had to do was go up to, to, um, to the school where she taught in Harlem every Saturday. And she would have like these great singers who would all come and she would yell and scream at us all and we would do what she said. And, and I remember when I was doing my very first Vietti Requiem, she said to me, you cannot possibly go and sing that never having sung it. So she put together a quartet just so that I could have the experience of singing it with people. And they were like people who were out working and doing great things. And Adele Addison used to, she would say, this is what I charge. You pay what you can, just put the check in the basket as you leave. No one does that anymore. So you pay what you can. This is what her fee is, but you pay what you can. And that's because these women came from an era of just wanting to pass forward, to, to pay forward all that they knew. And they were just so full of so much knowledge and goodness. So I wanted to share that before you moved on. And, and that was a, a Harlem School of the Arts. Harlem uh, School of the Arts, that's correct, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Jeanette, if you are, you know, I've been reading about your process through life and the way you carry this great voice through these spaces. 
And when I'm thinking about you in Turkey versus you in the class at the Harlem School of the Arts working on Verdi Requiem, I think the students need to know that those might even be comparable pressures in a sense. Because when I would sit and so I am, so to students, I am saying that I was the observer of talents like Ms. Jeanette Thompson learning the Verdi Requiem in my presence, right? I'm working on my very small Sam Barber song, but then also other people coming in to work on Tosca, right? So when she's talking about generosity also, you have to imagine that I am in the same room. She's allowing the gifts she gives to forget trickle down. It's like the basin, it's like the ocean, it's like bring your umbrella and come. And the, the price was for you to sit. And that class could be two and a half, three and a half, four and a half hours long. <laughs> you sit. You sneak in your chicken nuggets or your little donut if you have to. Uh, Youngju would bring snacks for us often. Uh, Youngju, one of her prized assistants and um, yes, yeah. lifelong um, uh, um, colleagues in this way. You know, I, Jeanette, thank you so much for saying that because there's anything I say is kind of like gonna be on the, just touch the surface. And that's why students do well to learn about these singers any singers from the generations just before basically yeah. the teachers who taught all of your teachers that you have now yeah. because it was a different time and that's where you learn the culture of what's going on it's yes. the culture it's who raised renee fleming yes where did don upshaw used to run around as a student looking for an accompanist yeah what was she like mm -hmm. what was that vibe because those are the kinds of stories that I've learned from my teachers and those are the kinds of uh, things that I imitate. So sometimes I feel very different in a space, but I know I'm actually being exactly like the stories that I heard. <laughs> I have a big grand company in a bunch of people that really are just profoundly legendary to me at this point. I may have never even met them, but still you read their biography. Listen, look up Jeanette Thompson and see what public radio interviews have been done with her. And then you understand a little bit better what she meant in that scarlatti with this thing, because she's going to talk about it somewhere else. And you get to dig, dig in the crates of that information and hear their old stories. Oh, it's so good. I really love this life. So thank you, Jeanette, for that. And please, anybody, interrupt at any time. This ear pod. Alicia, I'm going to put uh, I'm going to put the article up here, and it, could we could you read the first four paragraphs of this in your own voice since they're your sure. words? Okay, great. Here, I'm going to put this up, <laughs> and then uh, uh, in this profound storytelling tradition, and here's this beautiful picture that um, that they purchased yeah. the rights to print. And that is Marian Anderson singing 1939 Easter Sunday on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And I'm generally um, shocked by how many younger students don't know this story at all. But, you know, she invented this moment, this singing at the monument, this standing at the monument, this speaking at the monument. This is 1939. And this is the uh, cabinet of uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. This is a transformative moment in American history and in the history of people gathering in the country. This is a parent of protest. This is a parent of pageantry. This is a parent to so many things that we in our entire careers are living inside the lifetime of this one wave that was sent out on that day. And we often don't hear how instrumental Howard University was or the NAACP was to the day. We don't, we don't always hear about Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, inner relationships within the Daughters of the American Revolution with whom she um, publicly 
feuded. But all of these things are very um, purposeful and planned. They take months to come into the theater of a moment like this. So sometimes, you know, when we watch like reality shows or Tyra Banks tells the models, oh, I don't even know if people know what Tyra Banks is nowadays. Who knows what people know? Uh, they're, they're, you know, times move. But it's like, well, you know, the cameras are always on or people are always watching you. But yeah, like the cameras are always on and the people are always watching you so that the authenticity of who you are on the day, get ready, get ready. Because if you get called, it's still another six months of planning <laughs> before the big show. And I, and as I say, a life at the opera, it's an idea of your own life that you're living in your privacy and in the interiority of yourself that you realize can come to bear in a performance if you are willing to take the brunt of self-consciously really reflecting on who you actually are, because that's who you're actually bringing to the stage. So this hair, this fur, these relationships, these people, some of these people who helped this day come together had been uh, people who were giving her money as a young woman to train her voice. They just liked her voice. Do you understand? So you don't know you're going to change American history. Maybe that person just gave you a scholarship. Write that person and thank them because oftentimes they have a plan decades in the making that maybe you're right for, maybe you're not right for, but to be reflective about the gifts that you're given. And when people sit down and take time to tell you something special, that's none of what I wrote. But that's what that picture means to me. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I'd love to hear your voice reading your your words here, Alicia. Yes, maybe we start. Oh, oh, oh do you want to start? Oh, the yeah. flashpoints. Yeah. yeah. So they asked me to write about five albums, and so I only have fifty favorite albums I wanted to write about. So I tried to jam as many people and names up into the front of this as I possibly could. Um, just being honest. Two tremendous flashpoints in opera history seem to return to the mainstream every Black History Month. Leontine Price's sonic and visual triumph as the Ethiopian Princess Aida and Marian Anderson singing on Easter Sunday, 1939, before an integrated audience, which at that time was such a big deal of 75,000 75, from the steps, from the steps of, the of the Lincoln Memorial. And also all the people plugging in each one of those microphones, how many thousands of people does that represent in radio, listening and television? Each February, you're more likely to hear the magnificent voices of Robert McFerrin, George Shirley, oh, what a teacher, Simon Estes, oh I, my God, ring out in American culture. You might also hear Roland Hayes, who created a great archive of art song, or Paul Robeson, who did not aspire to opera, but altered its history nonetheless. All of these voices continue to pave the way for stars like Eric Owens and Russell Thomas, whose own recorded legacies should be required listening. And I say start here, John Adams, A Flowering Tree, which is just a record just I could just listen to on repeat. It's so beautiful. Another requisite recording, this jaw-dropping collaboration between Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle, a concert which launched a thousand careers, bolstered by the forces of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus and Orchestra, who just won a Grammy for their Porgy and Bess, the New York Philharmonic, and arrangers ranging from Sylvia Olden Lee. That's a must, I think. Pianist Sylvia Oldenly, quintessentially, well, also mm, mm, too many things to say, but really also responsible for suggesting Marian Anderson integrating the Met, uh, and Hubert Law's incredible flautist, to Nina Simone, 
my great great uncle Hall Johnson who was a great arranger of concert spirituals and a composer himself and also a Broadway and film uh, musician scorer and composer Margaret Bonds whom I hope everyone knows and Hale Smith who was also and Alicia, a if you could, friend of Adele if you could tell everybody here uh, about your namesake here well I think a brief way to explain it, Hall Johnson, um, he was a violist and he played Carnegie Hall with his string quartet, uh, also in the same era of Marian Anderson at the, at the uh, singing at the mall in 1939. He had his Easter cantata performed at Carnegie Hall. He had a grandmother, Alice, uh, whom I'm named after in a tradition of a sort, uh, uh, who had been enslaved. So, you know, in terms of songs, the uh, Negro spirituals, we're just at the end now of people who had relatives whom they knew, who had, who have also just passed, who knew slaves. Does, that's a very awkward sentence, but do you understand what I mean? because slavery ends and then the lifetime of those, even if you were two years old in slavery, you can only be expected to live up until a certain time. So we're in a time now where we have to hold on literally like never before because the people who had contact with the slaves are now also passed. And Hall Johnson wrote down the songs of his grandmother, Alice, but he was also a trained musician. And he, just if you think like about um, the concertization of dance, Catherine Dunham bringing her um, dances that she learned by being an anthropologist really in the field, going out through the islands, uh, traveling to Africa and learning the dances of uh, many, many people, but then bringing them to concert stages and touring them in ways where people could see um, what was happening in the world. This is before Instagram, before YouTube, before um, handheld, everybody has a, a big video camera taking home movies. This is like before all of that. So to see this um, from a black woman's perspective of what I want to look at and show to you and disseminate was very, very special. And we're still again in concert dance, living in the, in the, in the same epic one wave of these people who did that kind of resourceful um, looking at. If you want to take Quaker songs down from the turn of the century in America, uh, there was a window for that, a limited window. And then the time passes. And if they're not written down, it's just a hearsay. And it's, it's, it goes, passes family, family, mouth, lip, lip in the mouth. Uh, um, uh, in an oral tradition, which is beautiful too. Um, uh, so anyway, I don't even remember what you asked me, but that's a bunch of answers. To I just wanted everybody to know about your relationship to Hall Johnson. Yeah, and that's what he did. So if so, when you look in your program where it says Negro spiritual, sometimes it will say traditional and there'll be no name, but sometimes it will say arranged by H.T. Burley, arranged by Hall Johnson, arranged by Nathaniel Dett, arranged Sylvia Olden Lee. So my great, great uncle, Hall Johnson, was one of these whose spirituals you will hear on a stage like Carnegie Hall, sung by the greatest voices in the world, and then also any voice in the world, uh, but in these specific arrangements. Uh, and then, um, yeah, yeah, in these specific arrangements. Great. He also taught yeah. German to Marian Anderson. And he also personally arranged spirituals for her. And Marian Anderson, so it has to be clear, like you commission a composer, any of your students now might go across to MTC and they have a composer they've commissioned or a com composer is writing something on their young voice. Then, uh, well, I mean, what an honor, a privilege to work with a living composer, right? Um, so Hall Johnson is having that relationship with Marian Anderson. 
Uh, and Marian Anderson also had that with Margaret Bonds, who wrote songs for her. So, you know, you kind of get your little um, clicks together and those can also change the world. And keep your keep your keep your talented friends. Mm -hmm. Speaking of languages, I, um, in, you'll you'll get to this amazing uh, American baritone William Warfield. And uh, as I went back and I, I spent some wonderful, memorable times playing for many of Bill Warfield's students at the University of Illinois. And when he was a young man, he was very facile and learned many languages, German, Italian, and that kept him when he was uh, um, uh, in, in the army, um, he, his languages uh, allowed him to not go into battle, but to uh, be called upon uh, uh, for, uh, in, in this country, uh, uh, to uh, specialize in the in the area of 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 the armed forces where uh, Americans needed to know foreign languages, and and just uh, amazing. But I'm I'm both I'm sure so many people here, Jeanette, you and and Kim Josephson have William Warfield stories, um, and uh, I'll let you get to him in a little bit. But maybe we could uh, con continue with the, these uh, this. Uh, next paragraph that takes us on in, uh, into Grace Bumbry. In the summer of 19... Uh, drawing, the drawing a picture. Uh, when, oh, uh, drawing uh, a picture of what matters to me in opera, I start to see a kind of soundtrack of my life, performances and voices I could listen to on repeat forever because they confirm my love for this art while also presenting the difficulty of its past and the, the challenging histories opera tackles when it is most brave. There are as many angles on opera as there are singers, but here are a few select moments I come back to again and again. And you go, you mentioned a number of people here and I, I'll, I'll leave it to you with the, with the time that we will have to talk about Grace Bumbry, Shirley Verrett, Adele Addison, William Warfield, Florence Cuivar, um, you added here composer Anthony Davis. Um, you got to know Helga Davis, I think, through your residency at National Sawdust, or unless you knew her before that, but I was watching that video of yours performing with Jason uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I found that so enjoyable. Um, and you can tell us a little bit about Helga, who you got to know, who is an amazing uh, uh, um, vanguard career. But these are just some of the singers, and I'll, I'll leave it to you to, to, uh, to take us through some of uh, your thoughts on these people that were uh, so influential to you. Well, I think just pictorially, because you scanned so quickly, it really gives a great overview of, I think, who I think of as the opera audience. So the last picture down at the bottom, Einstein on the beach, they look like an audience, right? To the people above, but these are also people who changed uh, the world of opera that we now exist inside of. So the director, Robert Wilson, and the composer, Philip Glass, uh, that is um, uh, Lucinda Childs, the uh, choreographer on the left. And then on the right is Cheryl Sutton. And they are singing in Einstein on the Beach, which was written in the 1970s. And um, these kind of moments where you're not maybe born yet, but you're living in the wake of this thing that happened just before you were born, which is this contemporary popular, not pop, but popular, popular shift like two ladies at desks doesn't need the same kind of long program notes as maybe like Les Troyens or something like this. Do you understand? So that we are looking at what we are getting. Two people, and what are they doing? In this, they're counting. 
And do you think maybe we could play some of that sure. video? Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, there's just something about the complexity of the mundane, the complexity of the surface that I think really welcomes in a lot of people. I was reading last night, uh, Dennis Russell Davies, the, the conductor, talking mm -hmm. about why he loves to do Philip Glass. And he's like, well, among many other things and his respect for Philip Glass, he's like, you know, it just sells out the theater. We just can't sell enough tickets to this. And they said, and, uh, does it bring, yeah. who, who comes? He said, oh, just all different people. Yeah. Just different people. I, I, I don't know why they come. And I love the simplicity of the solution. We do it because because they come and I enjoy it. So uh, yeah. I don't know if you could play any of that. Yep, I'll, I'll play a little bit of Einstein on the Beach and uh, and Alicia and for the, uh, all of our students know, but uh, uh, Professor Kim Josephson here was uh, in the, uh, the Met uh, presentation of, of Satigraha and uh, has his wonderful did you do both uh, um, both productions uh, Kim uh, when it was revived the first time when it was conducted by Dante and then again uh, when it was done the second time did you do it both times um, I just did it the one time but Dante was the conductor the first guy that did it uh, was um, um, Patriarchal Earl ah yeah sang it the second yeah. When they recorded and, a HD, um, HD presentation. Yeah. So Kim had this marvelous, marvelous, uh, and it's been so wonderful to see it stream so many times in the, the past year. I started working with Philip in 1988 at Houston Grand Opera and worked with him straight through until 2006 when I took a position at UM, conducted a number of his premieres. Um, and so this is Einstein. Um, and let's see. Oh, I sent uh, a, a video uh, yes. at some point. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Okay. Uh, let me let me find the one that you sent. Um, Maybe too. You know, I'm so curious because. Because there's something about the way I wrote the article was I yeah. had one thought all at once. Yeah. And then I broke it down into spaces. Grace yeah. Bumbray in 1961, she's 24 years old, is most of the point. She integrates, again, racial integration, Bayreuth, Wagner's Bayreuth, and uh, uh, Wieland Wagner is uh, Wagner's grandson. And he goes through this word, this, I love this word, a, a denazification hearing. And he's ready to turn, 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 turn a corner on nationalism and try to create an image and a space uh, for the opera to thrive into the contemporary future. Uh, post-World War. And so it's a hefty legacy that runs through the family on, on both sides that he's dealing with. And I just wanted to put myself, when I've been most nervous, <laughs> I was not the first black person to perform <laughs> at Bayreuth with a Germany like you're the Germany in like in argument over whether that is a good idea or not. Like you're flown from America to do this thing and it's going to rest on your vocal cords. And the way that she sings it is and what she's singing as as uh, Venus, as the goddess of love in Tannhäuser and the things that I quite ironically, though, I'm sure very purposefully cast in this role, this opera, so that she could say these things. She's like, no, come Tannhäuser, leave all that. Come back here with us. You know, the the um, 
she's in a, 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 a festival of enjoyment up there on the stage, right? Um, with costumed um, uh, revelers, right? She said, no, be, be with us, be with us, partake in this society of love, right? And I think, yeah, that's, that's the message. And that for me is my connection, so much of it to opera, is that I don't even know if it's intentional. Like, hmm, do they know that we were going to all take this and do this with this later? Did they know that it rests on this, that I do this? Or do they know that I see the Egypt in this? I see where they got this. It may not be in the title, but I know where they got this information from. I know that scale and that scale did not come from Germany. I know that scale. That scale comes from here in antiquity. And so did they know I would seize upon my scale again and make this thing of it? I mean, I don't know what we think we know, but Einstein and the Beach is very related to this um, Grace Bumpery, age 24, gets off the plane. Come on. I mean, oh my God. I mean, where are the, give her a truckload of medals, right? And such a fantastic performance. So yeah, playing that Einstein, if you have it is cool, but if not, you know, people get it. Yeah. It does. Um, yes. I think we'll we'll pass you know this article on, on off to everybody and they can uh, choose to listen to that. I'm I'm I'd, I'd love to hear uh, you speak more about these uh, people just as you did about Grace Bumbry. Um, uh, do you? Uh, there's some other things I want to get to as well. Do you want to speak a little bit about uh, Shirley Verrett and your and uh, tell our students about. Uh, this incredible singer? Well, Shirley Verrett was capable of voluptuous phrases down low, quicksilver, mid-range, metallic force, leaning into the highest register because she had this, she was one just also like Grace Bunbury with the mezzo and soprano, um, like a justice balancing the scale. You know, they have these, interior that allows them to access points of each repertoire and brilliantly right so um yeah surely verrett uh, ms verrett sings her coloratura ribbons of cascading fast notes which i write because this article is also for people who are listening to R&B and hip hop and country music. And that's what this um, online magazine is really about. So it's like talking to people to have them to understand how related to everything else opera really is. Um, she sings coloratura like a hawk wrapping talons around prey, exerting necessary force to feed, but no more. Shakespeare's lady is calculated hunger. And I think um, then I go on to say how also elegant uh, she is. Maybe you can, is there, is it possible to see any yeah. of the video of her singing it? Yes. Because I need people to know she, um, Ms. Thompson um, was also one of these people. She come to my house, I would fly to Detroit airport stay in her house for three days and she taught me voice lessons like kind of an un unlimited number of voice lessons in these um in this like year of weekends that i would um visit her um and she and my mother were friends in new york city they had daughters at the same time approximately so ms verrett's daughter was my playmate in the park in New York City. And I love music. I was singing all the time. But and my mother, her relative is Hall Johnson. And Shirley Verrett also knows Hall Johnson. So I think that in these park conversations, somehow, she grew to feel something of a um, of an ownership of my some of my musical possibilities, at least what I could be exposed to. She introduced me to my um, my coach, Warren Wilson, uh, who toured the world with her as her accompanist for, for many, many years, and who also coached her um, through many roles, along with Claudio, Claudio Abado, who conducts this um, 
Lady Macbeth that we hear. So I feel like something of her telling me, you know, Alicia, there are many careers to have and careers are hard to have. I, I would never, I can't imitate her in a million years. But she was, we were in the kitchen and she was basically like, I thought, I don't know, was she, was she maybe trying to tell me I might not have a career like hers? Which I, I very well, I don't know what she like, it was just so sweet. It was like so beautiful what she was trying to say to me. You know, careers are just so, so the, career. the career. And I, 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 I will, I'm in your kitchen. You are cooking eggs that I'm about to eat. And you are Shirley Verrett. So I don't know what this is right here, but whatever with a career, I want to live my life forward like this because this is priceless and that is just being a kid in the park and she turns out to be a legendary artist but i have had relationships with people who are, you know am i people regular people that have well, changed the course, of, changed my life, the course of save my life my husband's life my children's lives also in the same exact vein is just allowing something good to lead you to some kind of work and then you do that little piece of work that was that just that little piece and they hear about it and they're curious they did that thing that i said they might tell you to do something else do the thing right because these are like the feathers falling off of the great bird flying ahead and then the, get one little eagle feather to fall down. Oh my gosh, it's a gift. So I, I, I think with Ms. Verrett, when you see, when I think about the way she sings the Lady Macbeth, I always think of her as just this grandest like bird and flying over us like also an angel, but also showing us where to go and how to be. You cannot be her. You cannot be her. But you can be an aggrandized posture in yourself when you need it. And I was listening to um, Jeanette Thompson talk about, um, talk about telling someone in a position of power who had not done the perfect thing in the moment telling them it's all right that's okay and when i hear that kind of story told that way that's when i'm so glad i hang so closely to the stories of my teachers because that's a secret right in there you ca i cannot sing verdi like jeanette thompson but i do know about that's okay that's all right you know i can play a little bit of the of shirley verrett here I mean, YouTube, who knew what vitamins that was going to bring? And also to watch um, these things with this lag happening is really isolating the face in ways that are very surprising. It's not a yeah. terrible thing. It's kind of you've made an art out of it, a visual art, um, and I'm enjoying it. But that that's what I mean. Like, I can't put any of that into word, right? Right. But that's what's happening live for people when this excitement around opera of that form is having a renaissance, right? It's, that's and really what it is. It's not written then. It's a renaissance of it and people are losing their minds. So part of me, part of me feels that as a student, like our responsibility 
is to figure out where in our music we lose our minds. Like, that's very important. And so within the rigor of the line, threading the voice, appoggio, whatever people are coming from, there's also this frenetic energy of the moment, which is Lady Macbeth, I'm going, no, kill him. We're going to take Pat, we're going to do this. And that you feel like some kind of rehearsal you can have with yourself where you can imagine these lives and, and put them in your body, your way, with your language, and that there be no bumps in between. And I think as many times as my teachers told me that's what technique is for, my fear, because my passion was so great, I was like, if I let all this out, I'm going to look triple messy uh, you know we make it somehow but that's how i got onto the ice just so you know short mm. story just i gotta i gotta find a stage where i'm not thinking about mirella freni where i'm not thinking about how kathleen battle did it where i just can't possibly wonder how um so and so would conduct this i'm on my own out here and I want to uh, feel around. I take a look around, see what I might want to do out here. That was kind of some of the impetus of it. Um, we have about 25 minutes or so. And you just mentioned uh, about being on the ice. Can you tell our students about your ice skating project? Yeah, well, growing up, liking music and liking classical music and really loving Carmen. Carmen was the first opera my parents brought me to, New York City Opera. And um, um, I just found that the ice skating routines were like where all the really great classical music was that I was getting exposed to on, on, on television when I wasn't expecting it. People often will say, oh, cartoons. That's where I got a lot of my classical music impetus is like, you know, Tom and Jerry or um, what was the, the Roadrunner uh, used a lot, you know, do you, do you know what I, you know what I'm talking about? Like sitting watching, mm -hmm. it's really actually training your ear from very young. What does good classical music sounds like they're using Shostakovich they're they're like really going for it on these cartoons <laughs> so um uh and they do the same video games I think there's a whole generation of people who say they got their Tetris and the Nutcracker and stuff you know those little video games that you're learning like and it kind of I mean there's good music in there right so um <laughs> so for me it was ice skating and gymnastics a little bit but not really the ice skating they use the best music classical music and then new film scoring right which is contemporary composers. So I'm getting fed this, getting fed this, watching the skating. I'm taking, taking skate lessons. I joined this um, precision figure skating team called the Shadows. Half of the costume is white and half of the costume is black. And like the whole team, not to be so racially like blah, blah about it, but the whole team was white and then I was black. So I, the iron, that is the funniest thing to me ever. I, when I started doing my own kind of work, I thought, oh, one day I have to make something of this shadow, but also being the black person, feeling these girls were so sweet, you know, but in my mind, I was like, oh, and I'm in the center of the pyramid, I'm the tallest, and we're going around and I'm holding, it was, it was just too rich. So I knew I was going to do something with ice skating one day. Um, and I also love that time. And, and, and what I learned from those other girls and women. But everybody skates to Carmen was kind of a thing that I realized. At some point, if you're a good skater, you're gonna have a routine, it's gonna have Carmen in it. And then there was this thing in 1988, the Battle of the Carmens, where Katerina Witt, East German, right? She's being spied upon by the Stasi. We didn't know at the time, but it came out later. 
And then versus the American Debbie Thomas, who is Stanford University Med School, where both my parents went to Stanford in California. They met there. So I'm already obsessed with, and this woman looks like me, and I can't believe this is black skater with the bang and the banana clip and the whole thing. And she's skating to Carmen and Katerina Witt is skating to Carmen. And they don't really realize it for quite a time, right? I think Barishnikov helps Katerina Witt. It's, no, 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 helps Debbie Thomas at some point. Or no, she had a Spanish choreographer. Anyway, I should really get that part together. But I decide, no, I'm going to not be Carmen in an opera, but I'm going to do the Carmen I've been drilling into my own heart through my passion for figure skating since I was a little girl. Like I know that Carmen too, quite well. So it's not for me to perform Carmen on the ice, but it's like for me to perform the selves that I have felt like when I have been on the ice. And when I'm in the music conservatory, which is another way of feeling very much on ice uh, at times. Oh, sorry, Jeanette has wants this. Yes, I, I just I just wanna I just wanna tie one thing together. First of all, it's it's amazing that you can do so many things. But here is what's interesting. No one would pay attention if when you tried to sing Carmen, you couldn't sing. So no one would pay attention. But the fact that you have a beautiful voice, meaning that you have been trained well. So then when you become the chameleon that you speak of, then everything is at your arsenal. You can do anything you want, but the training is what's necessary first. So otherwise no one would pay attention to, to what you had to say. And so I think what's really helpful, particularly for our students here today, is to know that if you are trained properly and you have the right technique, the world is your oyster. You can do anything that you want to do. You can even sing on the ice, which, okay, that's just totally crazy. But you can do it because we see an example of someone who has done it. And so that's what's interesting. But I still say no one would listen if you had not been trained properly. And when you went to do these different things, you did them well, which you did, you did them very well. And so this is why, this is why it's important to have the background that you need. I love that. And I should say the name of David Jones, who is who, a voice teacher here in New York City, who when I asked Shirley Verrett, if I can't keep coming to Detroit, um, for the rest of my life, and I have to work in New York again. Can you just give me a name of someone? Um, Adele had since retired. My teachers were retiring. Um, and I, uh, she said, oh, call David Jones. And then I tell David Jones, I'm doing these things. And do you know, I don't really know what he thinks about it, but he works with me to give me like this safe bed where at least I can come back and then like, like mm, oh, he go, oh, there's the, there's the, uh, whatever I had been lacking in the thing just before. And then, so when I told him I was coming to University of Miami, he said, oh, well, Alicia, the gold just follows you because the people there are going to overstand everything you are talking about. And they also are so busy making this, I think like a cradle for the voice so that we can do all these things. And I, I just appreciate all of you so much because I have really felt that from day one, which is kind of like in this thing, I was looking at this Dennis Russell Davies, he made me think of something where it was just like, yeah, some people might see something over there and be like, what is that? And then other people might say, huh, what is that? And then other people would go, oh, what is that? You know, like, okay, this person might get their finger bit off, but this, this, what is that? And then when you see something familiar come down the pike, it's, you can also be like, what is that? 
with a smile. And that is what I felt here. Something like a really safe embrace. So learning about each of you individually, I feel a little sad that I didn't get to hear about contemporary music preparation from you, Alan, because I was really curious how someone tells Florence Quivar anything about anything at all. And then she's like, yes, that was a great experience. And then you create a masterpiece in a room somehow with composer. Can you say anything about oh, any of that? Uh, we'll, save, we'll save that for another time. But um, oh, she, really? she, she, like you, has a, a, a beautiful spirit and a collaborative spirit. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the reason that I, yeah, we just, we, we, we're drawn to work with people that we, uh, are receptive and 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 here she was you know retiring from the concert stage with Amistad uh, her last stage appearance and we worked on a couple of other things as well but it was just the, her receptivity even at, at uh, her 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 late performing age um, we're gonna have to conclude here Alicia Alicia um, I I would just was there, is there any, does anyone have a burning question they would like to ask Alicia before we close up here? Um, sorry, I've saved this to the very end, but hopefully we can find another time to speak with you. There's, uh, I think we, we just barely um, tapped this. Um, if not, uh, I wanna thank you and I don't have to have the last word, but I do wanna thank, uh, thank you Alicia on behalf of all of these wonderful students who are here with you and my great, great, great colleagues. Um, so thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you at the university and the future. <laughs>